listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. What? Whoa. It's a Wednesday? Holy what? crap. Oh my goodness. Welcome on? to the new schedule of Best Served Cold, the podcast where we drink wine and we talk about crime. You may have realised that it is not Friday. No. It is a Wednesday. Welcome to Hump Day. Yeah. It's it's the best day of the week for you. Because, because our show comes out, obviously. <laughs> on, yeah. We all know you sit around and wait. Your lives are miserable until Dwind- a new yeah. episode comes. <laughs> Twiddling with your fingers... Wondering, what do I do with myself on Wednesday? But welcome to the show. If you're new here, I'm Laura. I'm one of your excellent co-hosts, and I'm now served with no artificial flavors or preservatives. Nice. And I'm Tama J. The voices in my head are telling you to give us a five-star rating. Nice. Nice little plug in there. But seriously, please give us a five-star rating. Please, seriously do. What is going on? I know, it's, it's weird. It's For us, we're recording now on a Sunday, yeah. which is very different. So, uh, like, I think it's just a bit more of, like, a pre-planned thing, you know, yep. a bit more scheduled. Recording on a Sunday, releasing on a Wednesday. We yeah. now have three episodes a week. Exactly. Because and that, we hate ourselves. And that kind of warranted the new schedule, you know, uh, upload scheme. So... We're going to have, I think, at the moment... Minisode comes out Monday. Monday. Wednesday comes out... Main I mean, s- main <laughs> show comes out Wednesday. <laughs> and our little mini after yeah. thought, which we haven't come up with an official name for yet, will be released on Friday. Exactly. We, we have a, a new show where it's basically just Laura and I, you know, talking, you know, uh, t- talking, talking it up. Shit. Talking shit. You we know. may, um, we've been tossing up the ideas of like maybe doing interviews, so that could happen. But I think mainly it's going to be us discussing anything that we may have not had time to include in the main show. Because, pardon me, obviously, we try and keep each of our individual stories to like a half hour, so the show's not four hours long. So we can't include everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's going to include little like tidbits that we didn't include in the main story, any corrections if we've stuffed things up uh any current news stories that we find interesting any updates on old cases we've covered all that good stuff i'm so excited for it because i I feel like it's more content for you guys to listen to and it's if you like hearing the banter between laura and i yeah friday's episode will be a bit more banter oh yeah it's going to be all about the banter you know you like sorry you go you like hearing about vegemite sandwiches and uh, how hot it is down here, then yeah. Which it's got all Vegemite that. sandwiches are a controversial subject. For are they people really? That don't live in Australia. Yeah, oh. like people outside of Australia have like a burning hatred for Vegemite, which I find strange because Vegemite is the best. But yeah, I mean, we grew up on it, so it's like yeah, you know. But yeah, so for those who don't like the banter, you're in luck because there will probably be a little bit less banter in the main show because otherwise we use all our words up. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. How's your week been, Tama? Uh, it's been good. Uh, you know, we have the new schedule thing going on, so it's we, we can talk about our weekends. Yeah. How was now. your morning, Tama? Why don't oh, you tell was... everyone about your morning this morning? Someone had a little bit too much to drink last yeah, night. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't fun. 
You sound like I'm not going to get into too much detail because I know a lot of people don't like vomit talk, but you sound like a fucking velociraptor when you get going. Yeah, it's violent, man. It's, it's hard really, really to violent. Like, support you as a partner and not just laugh at you because <laughs> it sounds really funny. Yeah, but that was my morning. Uh, I felt really ill and then chucked up a little bit, then felt a lot better. Came yeah. back ready to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm more guns blazing, bro. I got a glass of wine here. Not, like nothing round ever two. happened. Yeah, round two. We're ready for round two. If you never stop, you never stop. stop? <laughs> <laughs> if you never stop, then you never stop. What about you? How's your weekend? My weekend's been pretty good. Yesterday was possibly the laziest day ever. I had like an enforced self-care day because I'm very bad at like not doing things. Yeah. Or if I'm not doing things... I'm sitting and feeling guilty about not doing things. So I just had a day where I was like, no, today you sit and you watch movies all day and you don't do anything else. And was it glorious? It was pretty glorious. It was quite nice. But uh, no, I like this. This is quite nice doing a Sunday Sunday evening in preparation for the new week. Yeah, it's a bit more relaxed, I I feel. Yeah, we haven't spent all day working and frantically getting our notes prepared and everything. Yeah. But no, it's all good stuff. Yeah, any housekeeping things? I, I think that's basically it, just the schedule. Yeah, I think so. I think we've already pretty much covered everything, yeah. basically. So let's just jump into it. Cool, Tama, yeah. it's your turn to go first. Yeah, so today is part two of my coverage of Charles Manson. So specifically, this episode is going to go into the formation of the Manson family and the subsequent murders that followed from the manipulation of these people in the family. Uh, and then, uh, this is obviously, as we said before, it's a three-parter. So, you know, next week's episode is going to be the third part to the story where I delve a bit more into the backstory of the family themselves. I um, will, sorry, yes. I will just quickly say, I meant to mention this last week and then I got distracted and didn't. There is an excellent, it's a fiction novel but it's a fictitious retelling from the perspective of one of the girls from the Manson family. It's just called The Girls, and it's set uh, in the summer in the camp, I guess you'd call it, prior to the murders, and then the murders are right at the end of the book. But it's really well written, and it's a very interesting perspective. So if you are interested in a a fictitious retelling of the Manson story, then I would... uh, I think it's Emma Klein is the author off the top of my head, but cool. it's very good. It's called The Girls. I'll have to check that out. Nice little plug there. Um, so without th- further ado, let's jump into the Manselin family and the formation. The Manselin family? The Manselin family. What? Yeah, a little slip up there. Like, let's jump into the Manselin family. Wow. Just call me out. I will. Like, That's what we do. Just before I start my bit. It's Okay. Do it because I love you. Okay. So Charlie and his followers, before they were known as the Manson family, took the traveling to to California via a bus that he's stolen, as I mentioned last episode. They traveled along the coastline of California towards Mexico and Texas, partying and committing several more crimes. After about 18 months of of their travel, they finally settled in... Topanga Canyon near Los Angeles in a two-story house. 
It was here that Charlie began gathering some more male members to into his family. The first was a teenage boy named Bobby Beausoleil, who turned up one night for a party and then stayed on as Charlie's right-hand man. Bobby had been staying with his music teacher, Gary Hinman, not too far away from where the Manson set up camp. Bobby recruited another 18-year-old named Leslie Van Hooten to the family in June 1968. Around that time, Charlie and some of the girls traveled frequently to Los Angeles, where he met up with a record executive at Universal Studios. Former jail friend Phil Kaufman had arranged the meeting. This was where Charlie's entry into the lifestyle of the rich and famous kind of stems into, and he quickly turned on his charm to try and make a good impression. Soon, the family were rubbing shoulders with celebrities all throughout the Hollywood Hills, in posh parties, to meetups, and in the late spring of 1968, Beach Boys drummer Demis Wilson was driving away from Malibu Beach when he happened to pick up two hitchhikers. The girls were part of the Manson family, and they quickly agreed to go back to his Beverly Hills home with Wilson on Sunset Boulevard. The three of them made love, and... Then Wilson left for a recording session, promising to return later and take up where they left off. When Wilson returned home in the early hours of the following morning, he was surprised to find there was a full fucking party going on without his knowledge. He was greeted in the driveway by a short man with a scraggly beard who approached him, dropped to his knees, and began kissing his feet. The girls who Dennis had met earlier came running out and started shouting, This is the guy! This is the guy we're telling you about! This is Charlie! Inside his home, Wilson found at least 12 more women, most of them topless, lying around smoking pot. Manson told him that the girls were all there for Wilson's pleasure. Wilson was impressed with the sway that Charlie had over women, and he welcomed the family with open arms into his house, and his house would soon become a regular venue for Charlie's parties and orgies. Wilson called Manson the wizard and began inviting influential friends in the biz to come meet him. Dennis also allowed Charlie to use anything he wanted, his Ferraris, his Rolls Royce, the food and drinks and the drugs that he or his groupies wanted, anything they they wanted they had. Eventually, Wilson's manager became fed up with the influence and the expense that the Mansons were having on his client and Charlie and the girls were ordered out of the mansion. Rumors were also spreading of the children of the rich and famous being given drugs and having sex under Charlie's direction. Suddenly, this was a chapter ending in his life. Charlie's planned music career was being soon shut down. This caused him to build up a, a mass of jealousy, anger, and rage that would inevitably find its way out. So as we mentioned before, this is kind of like the the theme of the Manson, the, the well, Manson yeah, rage. Well, yeah, he was just kind of, he was fame hungry, essentially. Like he wanted to be famous. He wanted to be famous and when he couldn't attain the things that he wanted through manipulation or whatever it was, he became a very angry young man, as as we can tell from the last episode as well. Yeah. So... Manson managed to convince the owner of a Foreman Western movie set, the Span Ranch, in Chatswood, not too far from Topanga Canyon, to allow the family to live in the abandoned property. The family had now moved into the ranch and they were getting by by stealing and scavenging whatever they could find. Charlie took to quoting the Bible to the family members as they gathered around a bonfire during the evening. And a fun thing to mention that John Douglas put in his book was... Charles Manson was obviously a five foot two small stature man, not very large. 
he would often sit on top of boulders, on top of hills, always asserting a higher stature over anyone he was speaking to. Mm. Even in the interviews with John Douglas, he sat on the perch of, the, of his chair to seem higher than oh, John Douglas. Too, yeah. yeah. And they perfectly re- recreate that in Mindhunter, the TV show as well. So he would interpret the Beatles songs that he heard in the White Album, explaining that the lyrics were directed towards them specifically. One song in particular, Helter Skelter. He was telling his followers that this song envisioned an apocalypse brought on by a race war of blacks killing whites. The blacks would inevitably win, and he would, they would then later turn to Manson and his family to lead the new world. For Charlie, however, the revolution was taking way too long. He wanted it to happen now, so he began preparing family members for a series of attacks that would precipitate the black uprising. The first step would be to release an album of music that would contain subtle messages to that would help to initiate the Black Revolution. On May 18, 1969, Terry Melcher, a producer who Charlie had met through Dennis Wilson, arrived at the ranch to listen to Charlie and the girls sing. Melcher had made promises but never followed through with them. On July 25th of the same year, 1969, Charlie ordered Bobby Beausoleil and two women to the home of Gary Hinman, the former music teacher who Bobby used to live with. Manson had heard through the grapevine that Hinman had inherited $20,000 and he wanted all of it. Just Hinman, a, sorry, just a quick question. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do you know if there are actually any recordings available of his music there that are, you can hear? There are, there are indeed. I don't know in terms of Spotify or if it was streaming like that, but there are actual physical and digital copies of his music. The I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, very interesting. But there are, and you know, it's not terrible. Yeah. I mean, he had the, one of the best... He had years and years and years of practicing when he was incarcerated one time and, and it was said within a few months was writing 80 to 90 songs. So yeah, true. Guy knows how to write. Yeah. Um, so, just as I was saying, Manson had heard that Hinman had inherited $20,000 and he wanted to take it for himself. When Hinman refused to hand over the money, Charlie's then schemed up a plan. He called him over... And as he arrived, he was screaming at him and Charlie pulled out a sword and cut off his ear. Jesus. He then left giving instructions to get the money or kill Hinman to his followers. He cut off his ear with a, with sword. a sword. A sword. How do you even How many of those do you have lying around? Without He must have had great aim. That's like unless they restrained him. Yeah. Wow. After three days of Hinman not giving them the money, uh, Bobby Baudelaire stabbed his former teacher to death. Before leaving, he and his girls, he and the girls wrote words, political piggy on the wall with a Black Panther paw in red to lay the blame on the Black Panther movement. Bobby Beausoleil was arrested for the murder on August 6, 1969 after being caught driving around in Hinman's car. Manson was now ready to get revenge on Terry Melcher, the record producer who let him, who had let him down. On the evening of August the 8th, he directed followers Tex Watson, Linda Caspian, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel to the house where he believed Melcher was living with instructions to, quote, totally destroy everyone in it, make it as gruesome as possible. The house was located on 1050 Celio Drive, but Melcher didn't live there anymore and as we now know 
The house was now occupied by famous director Roman Polanski and his eight-month pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, the late Sharon Tate. That night, Polanski was in Europe on a film project. Uh, His wife was entertaining guests at the property, including hairdresser Jay Sebring, screenwriter Wojtek Frokowski, and coffee empire heiress Abigail Folger. Arriving at the property around midnight, Watson climbed the telephone pole near the gate and cut the power lines. The car was then backed into the bottom of a hill that led up to the house and the murder team walked up to find the victims. Watson thought the gate might be electrified, so he and the girls used a a, a brushy embankment to try and get around the, the grounds. Just then, as they were doing so, car headlights shine on them from further up on the property. Ordering the women to lie down in the bushes, Watson, Watson approached the vehicle and leveled his twenty-two caliber rifle at the driver, who was the late 18-year-old Stephen Parent. Watson first slashed him with a knife and then shot him four times in the chest. Watson then ordered Linda Casabian to keep watch down by the gate. He and other two women then made their way to the house. The occupants were quickly gathered around the lounge. When asked by Frakowski who they were, Watson simply replied, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. And began to tie the heavily pregnant Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring together in by their necks with rope he brought and slung over a beam. When Sebring protested over the rough handling of the now pregnant Sharon Tate, Watson shot him and then stabbed him several times. Jesus. Meanwhile, Frakowski began struggling with Susan Atkins, who repeatedly stabbed him in the legs and torso. Still, Frakowski managed to get out the front door, but upon seeing this, Watson rushed out after him, meeting up with him on the porch, and smashed his head in with the gun butt before shooting him twice. Abigail Folger also managed to escape out onto the yard, but she was soon chased down by by Patricia Kenwickle, who tackled her and then stabbed her to death. The now only living remaining victim was Sharon Tate. She lay on the lounge room floor with a rope around her neck and she begged to be able to live long enough to have her child. However, Watson and Atkins didn't hear her pleas and they stabbed her repeatedly, including areas of the abdomen, until both she and her unborn baby were dead. Remembering Mance's instructions to leave a sign on the wall, Atkins wrote the word pig with Tate's blood. The very next day, the family struck again. This time, the victims were Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. Unhappy with the messiness of the previous night's killings, this time Charlie with, went with the group to show them how it was done. So different accounts tell how it happened, but uh, we do know that Manson was in the house at some point and orchestrated the tying up of the couple. He then left the house with orders that the couple should be killed. They were finished off by Watson with a chrome-plated bayonet. Before they left, they wrote words, War, Rise, Death to Pigs, and Helter Skelter on the walls in blood and around the refrigerator door. The murders caused a huge panic through Hollywood. The pressures were now on to solve this crime and police were getting nowhere until they finally linked the Hinman murder to the tate LaBianca killings. They knew that Bobby Beausoleil had lived with a group of hippies at Span Ranch, so they decided to pay that ranch a visit. Bobby's girlfriend also told police that Charlie Manson, the hippie guru, had ordered the killing of Hinman. Still, there was no evidence linking the group's leader to the later murders. Then, in October 24, 
uh, October, sorry, 24 Manson family members, including Charlie, were arrested on the charges of arson and grand theft. Susan Atkins was also taken into custody and it was there where she would begin to spill the beans about what happened between her and the family. She bragged to a cellmate later on about killing Sharon Tate, giving detailed account and implicating Charlie as the mastermind. About the same time, police interviewed a member of the straight Satan's motorcycle gang who was a Manson acquaintance. He told the, uh, them that Manson was bragging as well about having knocked off five different people. The first piece of actual physical evidence found was a fingerprint of Patricia Wenwinkle that was found in Sharon Tate's bedroom door. When other pieces of physical evidence were recovered, the police were ready to send the case to court. Manson and the four people who had been committed who had committed the Tate LaBianca murders were found guilty and sentenced to death. However, in nineteen seventy two the California Supreme Court declared the state's death penalty laws to be unconstitutional and were temporarily overturned. So Manson and his followers' death sentence was actually commuted to a life imprisonment. There, Charles Manson would stay until the date of November 19, 2017, where he would pass away of a cardiac arrest, having spent nearly 50 years behind the same jail bars for his orchestrating of the crimes that shook the world of 1969. He was 83 years of age when he died. He appealed several times to get out of jail, and there's actually on YouTube and everywhere you can find, I think nearly every single appeal that was filmed, you can find. Oh, and wow. it's just bizarre because he, the trial leading up, I think, to his arrest where they, they, they ask him a simple question. Who are you? Yeah. And he makes these several different forms of these faces. Just this like, you have to look it up because it's just bizarre. Yeah. Before whispering, nobody. Oh, that's so good. But also, like, it goes to show that he's clearly not in his right mind because any sane person would be like, I should try and act normal for this parole board meeting because otherwise they're not going to let me out. I don't know. It's a a broad term to say he's not in his right mind because I think he is 100% coherent and knows what he's doing. But it's whether or not he gives a shit about the way he's, he's... scene you know what i mean so what about the the girls are they still alive and in jail i believe most of them are still alive uh you know this is of course something i will be going into the next episode Oh, okay sorry so i'll try not to give too much away uh because i do want to talk about them specifically next episode um one little fun tidbit uh this isn't our official six degrees of separation but brian cranston Actor from Breaking Bad, who plays Walter White, uh, also from Malcolm in the Middle, had a six degrees of separation with Charles Manson. Oh, I remember because we were saying like how crazy would it be if we got him on the exactly, show? Exactly, yeah. So um, there, there's, a, there's a video, I implore you look it up. Uh, just look up, you know, um, Brian Cranston, uh, Manson, you know. Uh, it was something like he was, they were on a field riding horses uh, and then out of nowhere, there's this, everyone's turning their heads going, it's Charles Manson. It's Charles. Charles. And they go, this is before the murders. Like, I think it was about a, a couple months before the murders. Right. Um, and he comes over this hill on this large 
horse, this rather short man with a beard and hair. But he's not controlling the horse himself. He has someone holding the reins for him. And he remembers just seeing this man with these just cold, dead eyes. Just makes me think of that scene from um, Shrek when Lord Lord Farquaad gets off the horse and he's got like the fake legs to make (laughs) himself look taller. Yeah. That's what I imagine Charles Manson on a horse would look like. Do you think he's compensating for something? Yeah, I love that movie. We should watch that movie again. We should, again. yeah. Great movie. It just never gets old. No. I think I can quote nearly the entire thing. But um, yeah, that's that's essentially, that's part two of my coverage. It's Very a, nice. It's a, you know, it's a real fucking doozy. You know, once, once all the pieces get together, it's, it's a, you know, it's interesting. That was, that was very good. Very well done, Tama. Thank you. Very well done. I try. Uh, I've been quite enjoying, because I think everyone knows the story of Charles Manson and the Manson family, but it's been really interesting learning more, like all the details of his life prior to the Manson family and yeah. We say it all the time, but it's like these cases like Ed Kemper, Son of Sam, you know the names, you know, BTK, you know, Zodiac, but it's the, the devil is in the details. And until you, like, read into the entire story, you don't really understand the full picture. Well, yeah, the next one um, I'm going to talk about is a is a very interesting one in terms of the motive behind one of the people involved. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else to input or shall I? No, jump right into it. We'll, we'll right keep in. the banter to a minimum, keep it at the end of the yeah, keep video, it short, why not? Sweet. You know? So, um... Sorry, sometimes I, because I type my notes quite fast and I don't bother spell checking them because I'm like, I know what I mean. But every now and then I'm like, yeah, like I really, really spelt this incorrectly. And I'm like, who the fuck is Barney? But it's supposed to be Barbie. <laughs> so I'm talking about the canon Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, uh, which if you don't know who they are, they're very interesting as a as a duo which we'll get into. So the, their victims were Tammy Homolka, Leslie Mahaffey, and Kristen French, who were the murder victims. But Paul Bernardo on his own had as many as, I think, 30 rape victims as the Scarborough Shit. rapist. Uh, so together they were known as the Ken and Barbie killers, but on his own, Paul Bernardo, prior to meeting Carla Homolka, was known as the Scarborough rapist. So I'm going to go into a little backstory of each person which is quite interesting. And as I was writing the notes, I possibly could have done it. It's one of those ones where you could have done a two-parter, but you're probably sort of stretching it out a little bit. So this one might just be a little bit longer because there was a lot of interesting stuff that I wanted to include. But okay. I can also include more about the trial in our little exactly, episode. Exactly, yeah. And that's, what, that's the glory it's of the kind of the purpose episode. of it. So Paul Bernardo was born August 27, 1964. He had a roughish childhood uh he did also have some cases of sexual assault being committed around him and to those around him so he was born into a fairly wealthy albeit highly dysfunctional family to parents marilyn and kenneth kenneth was allegedly abusive to marilyn and so after having two children together while still married marilyn begins to have um to meet up with one of her ex-boyfriends and having sex with him eventually falling pregnant with paul Kenneth agrees to tolerate the affair as he still is publicly listed as Paul Bernardo's father on the birth certificate. So Paul's father, Kenneth, was charged with child molestation in 1975, so when Paul was 11, 
for fondling a young girl as well as allegedly sexually abusing Paul's sister. His mother, after this, kind of falls apart at the scene. She's not really the supportive mother as her husband's charges leave her fairly depressed. So she withdraws from her family and friends and lives out basically the rest of her life as a recluse in the family home basement. She stops taking care of herself and just gains more and more weight eventually to the point where she becomes clinically morbidly obese and basically never leaves the house. However, Paul was described by those who knew him as fairly normal. Quote, he was always happy, a young boy who smiled a lot, and he was so cute with his dimpled good looks and sweet smile that many of the mothers just wanted to pinch him on the cheek whenever they saw him. He was the perfect child they all wanted. Polite, well-mannered, doing well in school, so sweet in his Boy Scout uniform. End quote. Yeah, just like me. (laughs) Love you in that Boy Scout uniform. Oh, yeah. When Paul was roughly 16, though, this is when people have been quoted as saying that they begin to notice changes in his personality and when it's likely that his sexual sadism sort of comes to fruition. So when he's 16, he has a really rough argument with his mother when his mother comes out and admits to Paul that he's an illegitimate child and who his actual father is. Paul is apparently disgusted with his mother and this causes a huge rift in their relationship and potentially where Paul's sadistic hatred of women sort of starts to blossom from. Makes sense, He apparently starts calling her... He still lives in the same house with her, but he will only refer to her as slob or whore. Like, Mm, he doesn't call her by her name. Paul and his friends would often read books as well as listen to the tapes of those, like, smarmy, motivational, like, get-rich-quick guys. Yeah, yeah. And Paul would specifically use the techniques to try and pick up women in bars. And due to the fact that he's quite a... I hate to say this about someone who's so awful, but he's a very attractive man. Like, Mm. he's got very... The blonde hair, blue eyes, chiseled face, like, jawbone that you could cut glass on. So... Combined with his looks and these techniques that he picks up, he's very good at picking up women. So prior to meeting Carla, it's believed that he committed his first rape as the Scarborough Rapist in May of 1987. He committed as well as as many as four rapes prior to meeting Carla in October of 1987 and as many as 11 by 1988. However, prior to this, it's also known that he would often rape and beat the girls he dated, forcing anal sex upon them and only going after girls who appeared that they would be submissive for his violent sexual fantasies. Jesus. And in October of 1987, he finally meets that girl that fulfills that for him, Carla Homolka, who's now known as Leanne Teela. So she was born May 4th, 1970. Her parents were Karel and Dorothy, and her father was a Czechoslovakian immigrant who worked as a traveling salesman and also had issues with alcohol, often getting into violent arguments with her mother. She had a pretty normal childhood, though. She was known at school as being a bright and well-liked with a love for animals. However, she was also known as bossy and once killed a friend's pet hamster after throwing it out a window. Jesus. So, like, not... A warning sign, for sure. Not a, you know, squeaky clean track no, record. No, at all. She, this next part made me chuckle a little bit. She was also allegedly obsessed with crime and true crime and would often scare her friends with facts as well as her obsession with the occult and attempts to summon spirits. I'm like, ha, it me. That's a bit on the nose, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, I don't throw hamsters out windows, but I do scare Not people yet. with my... Not yet, you know. Well... You need to find a friend who has a hamster first. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to throw a hamster out a window. <laughs> After graduating high school, because of her love for animals, she gets a job at Thorold Vet Clinic working as a veterinarian's assistant. There isn't 
a whole lot else you can really find about her backstory because she's essentially just a regular middle class white blonde gorgeous blue-eyed girl yeah and she sort of basically seems to have everything going for her which i think is why a lot of people from the public and her circle find the pairing really strange once his behavior sort of comes out a little bit right so in October of 1987, Paul and Carla meet at a convention in Ontario and Paul discovers quite quickly quickly that Carla is the submissive punching bag that he's been looking for and even shares a lot of his sadomasochistic tendencies. Carla's friends at one point find handcuffs in her room and she just admits that Paul likes to, you know, play in the bedroom. He likes a bit rough, which, you know. You know, we're not going to... We don't kink shame here. No. Later they also find... Um, Carla's friend Lisa discovers what is called the list. So Carla writes about having a healthy diet, exercising regularly and having good hygiene. But she also writes in regards to Paul and their relationship. And this is a direct quote. Never let anyone know our relationship is anything but perfect. Don't talk back to Paul. Be a perfect girlfriend for Paul. If Paul asks for a drink, bring him one quickly and happily. Remember you're stupid. Remember you're ugly. Remember you're fat. I don't know why I tell these things because you never change, end quote. Whoa. It was said that Paul at one point asks her, what would you think if I was a rapist? And Carla responds that she thought it would be cool. (laughs) At the time of their meeting, she's 17 and Paul is 23. So, I mean, not an enormous age gap, but it's still still like she's not an adult. No. And the age gap is important because part of what drove her to do what she did was her obsession with keeping him interested in her. So, sorry to interrupt, but she wrote that list Yeah. then. So, wow. she wrote that when they sort of were dating and she was still in Fucking school, hell. I guess. So, he's sort of this like wild bad boy and her coming from that very vanilla, regular, normal suburban family. Yeah, like moths to a plane. Yeah, but like moths to a, yeah, a burning like f- fireball gas canister exploding. Yeah. <laughs> so by nineteen ninety three years into their relationship, Paul is hanging around the Homolka family a lot and at hanging out at their family house a lot. And they loved him, but he's starting to get bored by Carla, despite her sharing his fantasies and encouraging him to continue assaulting and raping women throughout their relationship. Jesus. He becomes obsessed with Carla's younger sister, Tammy, who in 1990 is only 15. He complains to Carla that she wasn't a virgin when they met and turns his attention to Tammy. He begins to fantasize about her having Carla call herself Tammy during sex, as well as watching Tammy undress while masturbating, which Carla encourages and assists with by breaking the blinds in Tammy's room so she can't close them properly. Jesus. However, it wasn't enough, and he begins pressuring Carla to let him have sex with Tammy, which she agrees to. So according to part of Paul's testimony at trial, prior to her death in December, on July 24th, Carla laces Tammy's dinner with Valium, which she'd stolen from her work at the vet clinic. After Tammy loses consciousness, Paul rapes her while Carla watches. However, shortly into the act, Tammy begins to wake up, so they stop. On December 23rd, 1990, Carla again steals drugs from her work. However, this time she steals a much stronger anesthetic called halothane she drugs tammy again in the basement of their home she offers to paul tammy and her virginity as a christmas gift both paul and carla take turns raping tammy 
holding a video camera and filming the entire thing. Mind you, while this is happening, Carla's parents and her other sister, Laurie, are all asleep upstairs. Jesus, dude. While sedated, Tammy becomes sick and vomits, choking on her own vomit. The pair attempt to revive her unsuccessfully, and after clearing up any evidence of the assault and redressing her, they call the ambulance and Tammy dies in the hospital. Despite the pair's behavior, the fact that they vacuum and do loads of washing in the middle of the night, and despite the presence of a chemical burn on Tammy's face, because um, Carla also held a rag soaked in like a type of chloroform. Yeah. Niagara Regional Coroner and the Homolka family accept the pair's version of the events and the official cause of Tammy Homolka's death is ruled as accidental, choking on her vomit after overconsumption of alcohol. Shortly after this, one on June 7th, 1991, Carla invites a girl that she'd previously worked with who is only ever referred to as Jane Doe in the trials and on public records. She invites Jane back to her house for a, quote, girls' night out. Once at her house... Carla laces her drink with Hallison and once unconscious presents her to Paul as a surprise wedding gift. (laughs) Paul is thrilled as Jane looks a lot like Tammy and is also a virgin. Carla rapes Jane Doe and then Paul also rapes her, videotaping the entire thing. Jane awakes the next morning thinking that she's feeling incredibly ill and unwell from drinking too much and never realizes until Paul and Carla are eventually charged. There's actually a second occurrence where Jane Doe is invited back two months later and the same things happens to her again that happened to Tammy. She stops breathing, an ambulance is called, but a few minutes later they call again and recall the ambulance and Jane Doe did survive. Right. So on June 15th, 1991, Paul is driving around in the early morning looking to steal license plates when he comes across 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey. Leslie is in ninth grade, wears braces, and she had a good relationship with her parents, however, had begun to rebel and run away from home, but always called her parents when she was gone. On the night of June 14th, she had attended the wake for a school friend who died in a car accident, and after the wake, Leslie and her friends go into the woods to drink and grieve, finishing at around 2am. Leslie tries to return home only to find that she's been locked out by her mother who was sick of her breaking curfew constantly and had previously threatened that the next time you break curfew, I'm locking you out. So she does attempt to call a friend to stay at her house, but because it's so late at night, her friend's mother says, no, you're not yeah. coming over at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, Sorry. so sad. So wandering around, this is when Paul Bernardo finds her, and after Leslie approaches him to ask if he's got any cigarettes, he lures her to his car, kidnaps her, taking her back to his home. He drugs her and films Leslie while Carla sleeps. Carla awakes the next morning, upset that Paul has used their best champagne glasses to give Leslie drinks. Paul tells Carla that they have a new playmate. The following day, both Paul and Carla videotape themselves raping and torturing Leslie while Bob Marley and David Bowie plays in the background, and these tapes were later shown to the court during Paul's trial. Jesus, man. At one point, Leslie tells Paul that her blindfold is slipping, and possibly sensing that this this could lead them to be identified, Leslie is killed. Now, there's two different accounts of her murder. Carla swears that Paul strangles Leslie with a power cable while Paul swears Carla gives Leslie a lethal dose of Hallison causing her to go into cardiac arrest I would assume right either way they leave her body in the basement and then have a lovely family dinner with Carla's parents and her sister while Leslie's body is still in the basement fucking hell imagine being that fucking family man yeah 
God. They then decide the best way to dispose of Leslie will be to dismember her using a circular saw and encase the individual parts in cement and throw them in the water. Paul buys a dozen bags of cement the following day, and this ends up being a piece of evidence that they use against him, which Carla presents to the police. She explains that Paul was very frustrated because he had to bring the leftover bags that they didn't use, and in order to get a full refund, he has to disclose his name. Carla informs the police from where Paul had bought the cement, and the police immediately check and find on June 17, 1991, Paul Bernardo returned a number of bags of cement that matched the kind used to encase Leslie's body. One of the blocks they use they aren't able to push into the water and they leave it on the shore of Lake Gibson and on June 29th, 1991, the block is found by a father and son while fishing and this is what allows them to eventually identify Leslie. The same day Leslie's body is found, Paul and Carla are wed in a lavish ceremony with Paul controlling every part of it down to the forced inclusion of to love, honour and obey in Carla's vows. Paul is quoted as saying, if I spend $50 on a plate, I expect to get $100 a person, allegedly having set a goal of making $50,000 from their wedding. So they ask people to pay for their wedding. Like a wedding gift. He's saying, if you've come and had $50 dinner, I expect you to give me $100 Jesus. What a fucking dickhead. Yeah. In April 1992, Carla and Paul are driving around looking for potential victims when they come across Kristen French leaving her school. They pull into the parking lot pretending that they need directions and call Kristen over. They then abduct Kristen. Over the Easter weekend, they rape and torture Kristen, videotaping the entire thing, eventually dumping her naked body in a ditch roughly 45 minutes from where she was taken. She had been washed and her hair had been cut off, and due to the way that her body is left, initially no connection is made between Kristen and Leslie. This is thankfully the last murder the pair make, although Paul does confess to another 10 sexual assaults while in prison in 2006, one of which another man had been convicted and served a full prison sentence for. Wow, God. Now, prior to Kristen's death, both Carla and Paul have been questioned by the police several times, both in relation to Tammy's death as well as the Scarborough rapist case, and a DNA test at some stage has been taken for Paul, but took 26 months to be tested. Like, 20 before they tested it, or they were testing at that time? Months before it was taken and it took them 26 months before it was tested that is more than two years that is you know in a sentence way too fucking long yeah so upon which it fits dna taken from the scarborough rapist case and paul is placed under immediate 24-hour surveillance on February 9th, 1993, Carla is taken in for questioning but basically avoids all questions about the murders and rapes and mainly focuses on Paul's abuse and assault of her. Of course. After being sent home, she later confesses to her aunt and uncle that Paul is a Scarborough rapist and that both herself and Paul were involved in the murder of Leslie and Kristen, having videotaped the entire thing. In mid-February, Paul Bonanno was finally arrested in connection with the crimes. Over the course of the next few months, searches of the homes are done, but are limited due to Paul's sort of tenuous connections to the murders, being that no actual evidence ties him to it. On the 5th of May, Carla is offered a shortened sentence of 12, 12 years per victim served uh, conjunctively, so that means you serve two sentences at, at yep. once, in exchange for her full testimony against Paul, which she accepts. Now, I won't... Go into too much detail, and I'll probably talk about this in our little after show thing. 
but the police really didn't do a great job with this. Like, a lot of things I read said that they interviewed him several times, but because of the way he looked and the way he acted, they thought, well, this guy couldn't possibly be a serial killer or a rapist. Like, he's too charming, he's too good-looking, he's too white. You can't make that fucking call. Yeah. That's such a subjective bullshit thing. So Paul had been linked to the rapes for as long as three years prior to the death of Tammy Hamolka, with one of his ex-girlfriends going on record several times about Paul's rape and abuse of her, as well as the fact that Paul had the same car that many of the rape victims had reported seeing and lived in the same area. A report from Jennifer, his ex, is filed but never followed up on. In May 1990, the composite sketch from rape, rape Victims was released and a former employee of Paul's rings the tip hotline to say that Paul looks exactly like the photo, but again, this is never followed up. A number of Paul's acquaintances come forward and say that they think Paul is the rapist and a police officer does pay him a visit, but due to his charming nature, the officer doesn't think that he would be involved. He does take a sample... And Paul's sample is one of the five samples from the 230 taken that match the specific blood type of the samples found on the victims. But in 1992, when the rapes stop, the case gets put on the back burners, as do all the samples. Jeez. So they man. had his DNA the whole time and just went, well, he's not raping anymore, yeah. so it's done. Oh, fucking hell. In an interview conducted with two police officers that I read the transcript of, and you can watch the whole thing on YouTube, he's just such an arrogant prick he's so sarcastic and argumentative at one point they ask him did you kill elizabeth bain and elizabeth bain was a girl who was murdered in 1990 and her body was never found and her boyfriend was actually tried and wrongfully convicted and so they believed it's paul and he responds to what you would think is a fairly straightforward question with well that's a loaded question and goes into like all this bullshit about other stuff and the detective, like you can see on the, the detective tries to say something and Paul cuts him off. But basically the the detective's like, I mean, it's not really like, it's a yes or no. Yeah. Like, did you kill her or not? Like. But that's a thing that um, like psychologists and detectives will go into a lot during those interrogations. Yeah. If, if like you ask them a yes or no question and it's like. Did you kill so and so? That's they, a loaded question. I mean, it's not. But, it's but yes or no. If that person's innocent, they'll most likely respond in the way that matches the aggressiveness of the question. Like, yeah. Did you kill that person? They'll go, No, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. But a guilty person will go, Well, I. And then go on for a rant for 10 minutes. Yeah. So Bernardo has never actually been convicted of Elizabeth Bain's disappearance, but many believe that the evidence points towards him as the murderer. So Carla gets a really nice deal for herself from the prosecution because at this stage they believe she's essentially a brainwashed wife suffering from battered woman syndrome and don't necessarily know the full extent of her involvement. And I would like to preface by saying no one but Carla Homolka is ever going to know her true reason and intent behind this. So I can't, I am not in a position to say she wasn't suffering from battered woman syndrome. She may have been. That's not my place. I think at the end of the day, though, she still did it and should suffer the repercussions of doing so. So she's also checked into a mental health hospital shortly after Paul's arrest in March. And this check-in and the report done during her time there helps support her plea deal with the psychologist concluding that Carla, quote, 
knew what was happening, but she felt totally helpless and unable to act in her own defense or in anyone else's defense. She was, in my opinion, paralyzed with fear and in that state became obedient and self-serving, end quote. There was also this huge public outcry because the media is given a complete gag order during Carla's trial in order to allow for a non-biased jury selection for Paul's trial, which is delayed for two years after his arrest due to some controversy with his lawyer, which ultimately ends up A, being the nail in the coffin and B, realizing the cops realizing they kind of got played by Carla. Yeah, of course. So Paul's first lawyer is Ken Murray. And because Paul's a fucking sociopath, he gives all the tapes that they took of the rapes and murders to his lawyer, Ken, believing that if his lawyer has them, the prosecution will never get them. Sure. However, the prosecutors know about the tapes because Carla's told them, so they wiretape Ken's phone and eventually Ken, due to pressure from the prosecution and as well a hope from a moral standpoint, turns the tapes over and withdraws from the case And in May 1995, Paul's trial commences. And it's also this that makes the prosecution realize that Carla was a much more active participant than she sort of made out to be. However, at this stage, like, it's done. And I'm assuming due to double jeopardy, she can't be tried again for the same thing. No. So this plea deal has infamously come to be known as the deal with the devil and led to enormous public outcry from this and her subsequent release from prison in 2005. So finally, after a lengthy trial on September 1st, 1995, Paul Bernardo is convicted, found guilty on all charges of rape, kidnap and murder. In 2018, Paul Bernardo was denied early release, uh, thankfully, after serving 25 years, although he can apply again in two years, so I guess 2020. And he's still in prison, currently age 56. Carla Homolka, who changed her name to Leanne Teal, is living somewhere in Canada. She was remarried and now has three children, and she's living as a free woman. Gotta imagine being that child of hers. Yeah. You know, like one, any one of them. Like, they would have to know. There's no way they would not know. Yeah, I don't know. But then again, it does... You know, they have her DNA on file. It does make you kind of question, was she, in a way, another victim of Paul Bernardo? And had she not met him, would she have just turned out to be a regular member of society? Yeah, maybe, for sure. Like, but we're I think at the end of the Or is she evil? Yeah. I think at the end, the, end of, the end of the day, in no way does it imply that in the tapes he forces her to sexually assault the victims. She yeah. just does it. But, you know, and that's we do know that about a lot of abusive relationships. Like, these women are essentially brainwashed. For sure, yeah. But, like I said, like, no one but Carla Homolka is ever going to know her true intentions yeah. behind why she did But the same thing is said did about, did. like, Tex Watson and the, and the Manson family. Like, they were all 100% brainwashed by, by Manson. Yeah. They still fucking did it. Yeah. You know? But yeah, that is the story of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, the Ken and Barbie killers, or Paul as the Scarborough rapist. Yeah. Wow. i got to watch that, um, that interrogation, because that sounds interesting. He's very smarmy. He's very cool, calm, collected, and he sounds incredibly intelligent. Right, okay. Like... He doesn't 
he just sits and leans back in his chair with his arms crossed and just looks like cool, chill as a cucumber. Like yeah. he doesn't seem rattled by anything and he's just kind of smarmy and arrogant and acts like he's smarter than everyone in the room, which he he possibly could have been. Makes sense. I mean, given off of everything we've learned about him, he sounds like a narcissistic personality who had a profound love for himself and a profound hate for women as a as a whole. Yeah, and um, one thing I kind of, I debated whether I was going to include the letter as a whole, but Carla did end up, um, I think, gosh, the timeline in my head is funny, fuzzy now. Uh, I think it was after her arrest, but prior to the videotapes coming out, she wrote a letter to her family, basically talking about her involvement with Tammy's death and what had happened. Right. And how she'd helped orchestrate it and all this stuff. So Yeah. That's fucking terrible. A fifteen yeah. year old girl, I think it was. Her sister. Her yeah, fifteen her own year sister. old sister. At the end of the day, like no mentally competent person sexually assaults their sister. Yeah. It's um you know. I will say there is another podcast show which I will link in the notes because it's really fantastic uh it's called malice and it's run by a lady called ariel cooksey and it's an american show and she does her episodes are a lot more victim centric and she does paul bernardo and carla homolka from i guess the perspective of leslie and it's just it's very well written it's very well scripted very well done if you're interested in hearing more about this case then I would definitely... It's a hard listen. It's yeah, a fucking hard like it, listen. Yeah. But it's very well done. And I'll leave the link in the show notes for you if you'd like to listen. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's that's our stories for this week. That's the stories. That's wow. all there is. There isn't any more. But there is more because the not banter's what? <laughs> <laughs> Words. You always, do, you, you always get in this like little... I think my brain goes faster than my mouth yeah, and so then my mouth tries to catch up but it says the words out of order you couldn't be a rapper well I, you'd be like uh, i could uh, do it with what, practice what? if i knew like sure yeah i don't know <laughs> it was quite funny um a guy i work with sent me a message being like i'm listening to your podcast episode 20 and i don't think he's listened to it before and i don't know if he knew what to expect I just sent him a message being like, enjoy. And he read it and never responded. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) did you not know that we talk about like rape and murder and true crime and all these really horrible things? Like I wonder if they talk about fun stuff. And I was like, great episode to start with because he's quite a, he's a lovely guy, but he's quite a conservative religious guy. And I was Uh, like, great episode to start with fucking Des Nielsen killing and... Uh, killing and desecrating all these corpses of yeah. young men. Wow. We were yeah. just traumatized a poor innocent soul. Yeah, sorry. Probably should have started with yeah. the... Uh, this cut- show comes with a disclaimer. <laughs> you don't open it up and listen to it. Well, it you... does genuinely come with a disclaimer, a disclaimer in yeah, the notes. Exactly, yeah. So, anyway... That was a good episode. Yeah. I feel weird doing this on a Sunday. It feels very It feels very odd. odd. I'm sure we'll get into the swing of it, but it feels like, yeah, it does feel 
odd. Because doing it on Thursdays, you're always like, oh, tomorrow's Friday and then it's yeah. the weekend. And now yeah. it's like, oh, tomorrow's Monday. Yeah, Gross. fuck that. Ugh, I have to go to work. I have to make money. Ugh, yuck. Wake up and I have to do be. Stuff. I have to like be out of bed. Yeah, that's Gross. the worst, dude. It's the worst part about it. Just existing is hard sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> what the it living is. sucks. I don't know. Living doesn't <laughs> suck. I'd like to clarify that. Living is great. Yeah. I am very grateful to be alive, but sometimes just existing, existing is, is, a, is hard exhausting. Yeah. and exhausting. Yeah. I'm just tired of being a human. I just want to be like, just for a day, I wish I could switch bodies with my cat and just like sleep Veg. all yeah. day and get cuddles and have someone deliver me food into a bowl. That would be great. That's the dream. Yeah, well, you know, we keep doing the podcast. One day we'll get so rich that that'll basically be our lives anyway. We we'll get so bored doing Sleeping that. around. Someone will bring us a bowl. We'll yell at them until they hand it to us. Let's be real. We both get very bored doing that. Yeah, no, we would get very bored. Um, So we don't have a Six Degrees story this week for you. Fuck. But if you are listening to this and you do have a Six Degrees of Separation story you would like to send us, please get in contact. If you've ever, you know, uh, chatted with a cult leader, sat with a serial killer or... Walked the dog of a convicted felon. You ruined the alliteration. What's the alliteration? Chatted with a cult leader. Sat with a serial uh, killer. Right, I wasn't paying attention to that. I was trying to think of one for M, but all I could think of was made love, and then I was like, that's super weird. I don't want to know yeah. if you've had sex with a murderer. Please don't please tell don't us if that's tell happened. Us that. I mean, you can if you want, but please don't go into graphic detail. Yeah, we'd but rather yeah, not. But yeah, uh, if you'd like to tell your story and you're not really keen to record your own, you can type it and we'll read it out for you. If you are keen, you can do a little recording. We don't expect it to be like... A-grade quality on your phone is fine. You can email it through to us at bestservedcoldpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get in contact with us on all of the social media platforms at the BSC podcast. That's yeah. us. Uh, I don't really know what else to say. It's kind of a weird... Yeah, what are you grateful I for? I, I'm grateful for... Barocca? Yeah. <laughs> coffee and Barocca. Oh, I'm so grateful for our new little coffee machine thing. It's yeah, so good. It's amazing. We're on that We're, we're making filter. filter coffees. It's but just... Like good filter, yeah. not there's, um There's a coffee store near my near my work where I get uh, my our, our beans from, and it, they're just insane. Like, yeah, they're delicious. Really good. Uh, delicious. So, we, we, we grind our own beans and... Press it through a filter, like a the paper filter. Um, oh, so oh, good! It's just it's next level. It's so different to every other form of coffee. Do you know what? I, the other thing that I'm finding weird is I put my I have like reading glasses and put my reading glasses on because I was getting a headache to read my notes. But now I'm noticing I still have them on, and the rest of the room is. Oh, there we go. <laughs> the rest of the room is blurry, and I was like, oh, it's because I've still got my glasses on. Yeah, silly old me. Just turning into a little grandma. So, what are you grateful for? Uh, I already said mine. The Did coffee. You? Oh, that's what you were coffee. Okay. That was my thing. I'm grateful for the small things. Yeah. 
I'm grateful for our cats. They're really cute. Mm. Like, I've had a couple of people message me, be like, I want to see pictures of the cats. And I was like, you don't know we what you're asking you p- for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inbound 50 photos yeah. of I have to like restrain angles. myself and be like, here's two per child. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll just spam you. We tried this uh, restaurant today that we were always looking forward to try. That We're not going back to because yeah. I got annoyed. So, here's the thing. Here's the thing about <laughs> All right, the drop thing. the thesis. Hospitality in Australia is a lot different to hospitality in America because we've established that the wage a hospitality worker makes in America versus Australia is vastly different. So I know from having worked in hospitality for years, if you're like above the age of 20, your wage is not that bad. You're possibly making, depending on which industry uh, fund you're on, you're probably making about $25 an hour, which is not it's terrible. A it's a livable wage. So we walk into this restaurant on a Sunday in the middle of a pandemic at like one o'clock in the afternoon. There is four other people there and like 15 empty tables. And we walk up and this woman was just so rude. She was like, do you have a reservation? And we were like, no. She was like, oh. Cue, uh, cue the gif from Pulp Fiction of him looking around the room. We're like, there is no one here. Like, yeah, there's no one here. And then the, one of the reasons we went in is because they had this big banner on the outside that said $10 lunches Thursday to Sunday from 11 a.m. And I was like, sweet. That's like such a nice cheap lunch, like $10 each. We had one of our mates over. We were like $30 lunch for the three of us. That's such a good deal. So she gives us the menus and walks away. And I'm looking at these prices. I was like, this is, this is not $10. It's not $10 at all. This is not. Where's my $10 burger that you promised me on the banner outside? So she comes back over and I was like, oh, just, I'm just wondering like, what are the, what's the $10 special thing about? And she looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah. yeah. She was like, $10 special. Like, what do you mean? And I was like, oh, there's a banner outside, like a giant seven foot tall banner. Again, confused as fuck. Says about $10 lunch. She went, oh, I don't know about that. Like sometimes... (laughs) We'll have something special that's ten dollars, but no, we don't have a. Next thing I realize, the bat. I look out the window and I can see the, the banner, banner hanging off the window that we're sitting next to, and I was like, "It's outside just say, your like, place not, of work." Like, I, it just rubbed me the wrong way. I was yeah. like, "Bitch!" She's like, all, "I'm all, not crazy." We have there's like a lunch specials menu. She's like, "All the specials for the lunches are on there." I was like, "But none of them are ten dollars, like, and you I have are... a seven foot high banner with ten dollars." Yeah. It's like I, I understand the concept of a fucking lunch menu. I'm well aware of that. Anyway, it just really rubbed me the wrong way, mainly because had she been like, "Oh, that was a thing, and we don't do it anymore, and we just haven't taken the banner down yet," I'd be like, "Cool, cool, totally easy. fine." Yeah. I'm still going to eat here. Like, we've already sat down. It's We're not going to get up and leave. But to be like, oh, what do you mean? Like, yeah. what? <laughs> what is $10? I don't even know what that is. Like, yeah. bitch, you know what I'm talking about. That, that would be like going to a hairdresser and being like, I want you to cut like five centimeters off of my hair. And they're like, what? I mean, you, one could argue that hairdressers do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Like, we don't know what I centimeters are. I just want a are. trim. Next minute, I've got, like, a pixie cut. Like, yeah. cool. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the biggest nah. lie everyone has ever told. Like, looking... There's two lies you tell in a hairdresser. 
One is when they like show the back of your head and you're like, cool, it's the back of yeah. my head. Like you're like, wow, <laughs> yeah. it looks so great. And in your head you're like, it looks like the like, back, of, like my the back of my head. And then the second is when you hate it and they're like, do you like it? And you're like, oh my God, I love it. And then you go home and cry. I've done yeah. that so many times. It's always a weird thing because you're like, I want to get a haircut and like look different. But then you do it and you're like, I regret this and I can't get yeah, it back. Yeah, I can't like staple it back yeah, to my head. Yeah, it's done. I got to wait fucking six months for it to grow back. Well, you don't. You have to wait about six months. I have to wait about six years. My hair grows so Yours slow. Yours does grow very slowly. Which I don't know if that means like, am I deficient in something? What makes know. hair grow? I have no idea. Maybe genetics, I, I would imagine. Don't know. My mum's hair grows really fast. My dad's hair doesn't. I must have got my dad's hair. Maybe. Isn't this an interesting uh, hey, thing? Hey, people this... say that they like the banter. Yeah. So we've done our part. We've done the stories. If they don't like the banter, then they've already tuned in for the part they came for. So you just you just click, yeah, click out of it. at us, you know, if you don't like the banter. Or don't. Or I don't. really prefer I mean, you don't because yeah, my feelings are very fragile. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're one uh, bad comment away from crying. Not that we. I haven't got cried any. yet. Yeah, we haven't had that. Ma- See, the thing about the bad comments, or not bad comments, bad reviews we've had so far, is they're just so ridiculous. They don't bother me. Yeah, it's more so funny just like reading them because you're. I like, think this if is someone was stupid. to be like, it's not entertaining and it's poorly researched, yeah, that would genuinely like, upset me. Whoa. Okay. So fuck. I'd be like, a. I'm funny as fuck. Like, don't pretend that I'm not. <laughs> And B, we spend so long researching. But here's the thing. I was actually thinking about this the other day. Is unless you were there at like the trials. How do you know? How do you know that the inter- like the research you pulled from the internet is accurate? Like you never, I always try and only include stuff that I can cross-reference and check from multiple sources. So then you can assume that yeah. it's correct. But how do you know that like, some reporter on the day didn't just make something up and then one news article, like as we established from the um, Kitty Genovese story, like one news article can spark an entire fucking psychological movement Yeah, because so, you know, we do our best. I suppose we're fortunate enough to be covering cases mostly so far that have been in the 60s and 70s and 80s. You know, nothing so far has been really not. We haven't covered a lot that's been within the two thousands. You know, yeah, that it's very like true. not a lot. A lot of it's had a lot of time to process and sit and be fact checked. Whereas yeah. if we were covering something from like five years ago, which like the Paul Wilkinson story, it's hard to get a credible source of information for it because it's like there's only two companies that really cover the stories on it yeah and then how do you know they haven't just been like let's just yeah. make this up this sounds interesting exactly. and entertaining how much is it is buried by the police not wanting a story about one of their own becoming a murderer out you know maybe one day we should do like a fiction episode where we just Ooh. make up our own stories. yeah and we'll see if anyone can pick up and on make the fact up that it's bullshit the most oh that would actually be a great idea yeah and just not say that we're doing it yeah. like today i'm doing Gary Rickenhold, the Austrian serial killer who strangled 27 women with one pair of socks that he carried around with him for 13 years. Yeah. Like, that sounds like a real thing. Do you remember that photo of Justin Bieber eating a hot dog from the center? No. So there's a photo 
of Justin Bieber, and I'm using quotation marks. Oh, it's marks a deep here. fake, is it? No, no. no. Oh. So it, it was an it was a real photo taken, and it looks like Justin Bieber with like glasses and hoodies on, and he's eating like a, I think it was a hot dog, uh, like American hot dog, and he's eating it like how um, Malcolm Turnbull eats sausage rolls and bunnies from, like, the, from center. the center. It's so it makes me so disturbing, uncomfortable. And, and it went viral. Everyone was like, "What the fuck is he doing? Holy shit!" And then these YouTubers came out and basically. They released this video of them staging the whole thing. Uh, it's like hiring, a lesson about like viral media. Hiring a guy who Very looked like Justin Bieber wasn't Justin Bieber at all, and they forged it. They sent it off the news agencies yeah. and said like, "This is Justin Bieber." On that, that segues quite nicely into the one last thing I'll talk about, and then we'll wrap this shit up. Yep. Uh, I watched this documentary called The Social Dilemma on Netflix. You watched like half of it with me. Yeah, I watched it's the whole fucking thing. terrifying. It's made me like scared of my phone. Uh, So if you want to have an existential crisis about your overuse of social media and then question everything you know about your identity, whether it's actually things you like or whether Mark Zuckerberg has coerced the algorithm into making you think you like it, then I would watch it because now I'm like, do I actually, do I even like coffee or does the internet just tell me I like coffee? What are you doing to me, Zach? Like, anyway, it's very interesting. The, the... A statistic I found the most interesting was that in 2009, when a lot of social media became available on mobile phones, there was an enormous jump in self-harm and suicide rates among teens, like direct correlation to when these face like Facebook app and Instagram and all that sort of stuff became available on mobile phone devices. Which makes sense given like social standards and... Very fucked up. Very interesting. Yeah. But yeah, um, I would... Highly recommend. So those are my recommendations for the week. Watch The Social Dilemma. Listen to Malice Podcast, which I will link in the bio, and read The Girls by, I think it's Emma Klein. Yeah. I'm sure if they look up The Girls, it's like, you know, one of the first things that shows up. Or did you type in The Girls, Marilyn Manson or Manson, whatever? Yeah, it's Emma Klein. I just looked it up. Nice. But yeah. Cool. Good stuff. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to add? Uh, I love you all individually. Uh, the secret listening. code word for this week, which we forgot to do last week, is curly fries. Curly fries. So send us, if you've been listening the whole way through, send us the code word so we know who is on the good Santa list for Christmas. <laughs> Everyone else is on the naughty list. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry about it. We don't make the rules. No. Except we do because it's our podcast. Yeah, it's our so, fucking show. Yeah. So. Sorry. Again. But yeah, thanks for tuning in. Again, if you want to get in touch with us, our email is bestservedcoldpodcast at gmail.com. And we are on all of the social medias at the BSC podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. Make sure you tune in on Friday when we will have the Afterthoughts episode, which we will figure out a name for between now and next Friday. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Uh, I'm assuming we'll be discussing last week's episode, which was Dennis Nielsen and Charles Manson part one. So make sure you tune in for that. In the meantime, have an excellent rest of your week. We love you all so much. And bye. bye. Spaghetti. Marinara sauce. Rigatoni. Neapolitana. Red Kemper. <laughs>